been told to move here. And I've been told a camera will just follow me. I did say to them, does that mean I can go anywhere? And they said, no, no, just between these two positions. Don't, don't test us. Let me pray. Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that it is your word that changes our hearts. So Holy Spirit, come this morning that we might know your presence here with us, that we might leave this place more in love with you than we were when we first sat down this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the interesting things that happens when you get married is you suddenly have to work out the division of chores. And you have to do this in a fair way. So the way that Steph, my wife, and I have done this is she does everything inside and I do everything outside. Which means that my chores really are only washing cars and cutting the grass. Now, when it came to cutting the grass where we, where we live before I became a minister, this was the simplest task in the world because the garden was tiny. It used to take 10 minutes to cut the grass. Now that we're in a manse, we've got this wonderful L-shaped garden that takes roughly two hours. <laughs> we've yet to have a conversation about this redivision of labour. And, and it takes about an hour and a half, two hours for me to cut the grass at the manse. It was just fine. I don't measure how long it takes to cut the grass in terms of minutes. Rather, I, I, I judge it by how long, how many podcasts can I get through? How many episodes of a podcast can I get through when it comes to cutting the grass? And for that time when it comes to cutting the grass, I switch off and focus on trying to cut the grass in straight lines. Not always successfully. Listening to podcasts and trying not to get the fright of my life if the window cleaner somehow appears at the same time and he's now just standing behind me whilst I'm trying to cut grass with noise-cancelling headphones on. And just before the winter came, back in about August, because that's when we have winter in Scotland, I was cutting the grass and listening to a number of different podcasts. Some are about Christian leadership, some are about ministry, sometimes I'll even listen to a sermon, not my own. Um, and sometimes I'll listen to football podcasts. So I was listening to this football podcast and about 20 minutes in, the, the interval comes and you get the adverts. I don't know about you, but when it comes to adverts, I like to be able to skip through them to get to the next point I actually want to listen to. We all do this with TV as well, don't we? When it comes to the adverts, who wants to watch another advert about the DFS sale that's just year-round? So I would normally skip through the adverts, but this day an advert caught my attention. In this massive, booming voice, all I heard was, what is belief? I suddenly thought, what am I listening to? What is belief? I'm expecting a philosophical answer, perhaps a religious answer. But no, because you're listening to a football podcast, it turns out that belief is all about football. And so people would start talking about their beliefs they had for their team for that year. That their team would win the cup that the team wouldn't be relegated, they were going to win the league. They had these beliefs about their football teams. 
And the minute what I've found in spending time with football fans, and I don't know if you know any, but they could spend forever talking about football, couldn't they? But at the start of the season, fans will speak with confidence about where they will see their team's fortunes lying that year. And that confidence then either grows or shrinks depending on the opening few games. And if they lose their opening few matches, suddenly the confidence in the team, the board, the management, the strip, the park, all disappears. Because fans are fickle. And their confidence is often wrapped up in their team. And if the team doesn't do well, they don't do well. Now I reckon that not everyone's confidence is found in a football team. But I think there are some people who have a real lack of confidence when it comes to daily life. And I think the reason for that is because there are times where we compare ourselves to other people. What have we said about an idea of comparison? Well, haven't we said that comparison, when we compare ourselves to others, or even compare ourselves to other people, or to organisations, or even compare our church to another church, then what we find is we get out of a lane that God has called us to, and that God has equipped us for. We can't focus on everything. We can only focus on what's in front of us. And when we begin to play those games of comparison, our joy is robbed from us. That lack of confidence then becomes self-explanatory. The other problem that comparison has is that when we win, that renewed sense of confidence fills us. But if we lose, that confidence diminishes. And if our confidence is only built on when we win then it's a shaky and insecure confidence. Because we're always waiting on that person who'll come along who beats us. So what I hope we're going to find this morning in this psalm is a renewed confidence. Because it's a confidence that is totally and utterly anchored in a fixed reality and not in our own ability. Imagine for your moment your confidence came in the fact you could create beautiful pictures. But disaster strikes as you fall and break your wrist. And now you cannot do the very thing that provided you with your personal confidence. What happens? You begin to have those doubts about yourself that then start eating away. And then when everything is healed, there's a sense of trying to not to overdo it. But that means the confidence you had was always in your own ability. But there's a way for confidence to be grounded in something better than just what we can do. I'm a confident speaker in just about any setting. But if I was to lose my voice, that disappears in a moment. So our confidence cannot be in ourselves. It has to be outside ourselves. Our confidence can't be in other people or things either because those are goalposts that are always going to be movable. And this is a psalm where the goalposts are totally fixed. And the fixed reality offered in this psalm changes how we pray and changes how we hope. 
So what we'll find in our time here is that confidence that we can have is a growing and sustaining confidence no matter what life throws at us. Uh, Courtney Reisig, whose book I've used in this past week preparing uh, for today, writes this on this psalm. David gives us permission to feel the changing reality of life in a broken world. But to lay hold of the fixed reality of life with God. So we're going to explore this psalm under three different headings. Uh, We're going to dot around um, within the Bible, within Psalm 27. Um, So if you want to have it open in front of you, that would be helpful for this morning. So first of all, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 and 6. Uh, One of the phrases you might have heard me use quite regularly just in that introduction was this idea of a fixed reality. What on earth is a fixed reality? And I'm not going to lie, this has totally messed with my head this week. I wanted to try and write some statements that are always true, because that's what a fixed reality is. So the first one I wrote down on a piece of paper was, the grass is green. And the more I thought about the fact the grass is green, I realised that actually the grass is not always green. Sometimes the grass can't actually be seen because it's covered in a blanket of frost, which seems to have been the reality since about the 1st of November. Sometimes the grass gets burnt from the sun. Quite how that happens, I don't know. I think it's only Scottish grass. You look at Scottish people, we're the only ones that go bright red. Grass just goes burnt when it sees the sun. So, so that fixed reality of the grass is always green actually is not always true, is it? And I must have went through a whole host of those kind of statements. But at the end, I scrubbed them back out because I can't say they're true all the time. So isn't it good news that our confidence lies in a fixed reality that is always true and is true all the time. Because what we find David saying here is that his fixed reality is in the fact that God is his light, his salvation, and the stronghold of his life. They're the fixed points of reference for King David. They're the things that nothing can change. And therefore, David can look at those and say that next line. If God is all of that to David, never changing, then who should he fear? Who should I fear when God is my light, my salvation, and my stronghold? And isn't that a fixed reality that we want as well? To be able to go into the world around us and know that God is our light, the one who will continually guide our way. To know that it is in God our salvation is found and it's not in us trying to be better or to do things better or to find it in the things of this world. But actually it is in Him. And isn't it a comfort to have a stronghold? To have the person we can turn to over and over again and know that he'll be our protection not only physically but spiritually. And maybe your answer to those questions is, well, not really. 
I don't need light or salvation or a stronghold. My life looks good just the way it is. So why does David write this? It's worth remembering who David is. You know, at this point, he's not just a simple shepherd boy. He's king of all Israel. His life is pretty good. And yet he writes this. We find out a little bit more about what's going on in this current situation for David in verses 2 and 3. Where the wicked advance against him to devour him. No an army besieges him. No war break out against me. Wicked advance. Armies besieging. War broken out. David has to face a lot of enemies throughout his time as king in Israel. And even before he's king as well. There are times when the picture for David is simply bleak. And we're left wondering how on earth is he going to get himself out of that situation now. One of the delights we have at Kirkmere Hill is our holiday club every year. And we get roughly 60 kids coming every morning. It's total and utter chaos. Um, but we wouldn't have it any other way. And this year we looked at, um, we, our theme was uh, based on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Um, I'm a Christian, get me out of here. And we looked at stories of characters you'd find in God's word who have been rescued in some way by God. And one of the characters we looked at was David. We only spent one day on David, but we realized very quickly that actually for David, you could have done, I'm, I'm a David, get me out of here for five days of that week. Because actually there are so many stories of how David cries out to God and is rescued. Here he is, surrounded on all sides. Opponents to him who are bigger, stronger, and richer. And let's be honest for a moment. When we feel surrounded on all sides, when everything around us just feels difficult, when it's one body blow after another, it's easy for our confidence to dry up and disappear. But instead, because of his fixed reality, because of who God is, what does David tell us? He tells us it's his enemies who stumble and fall. His heart does not fear. I will be confident. One of the hardest things about reading God's word is actually putting it into practice, isn't it? Because there are times when I'll worry and fret about a whole host of things. I was actually worried on my drive over this morning that you all have heard that this random interim moderator was coming and no one was going to come to church. In fact, when I walked in at about 10 o'clock this morning and there was no one else here, I thought my fears had been realised. I've never been so delighted to see people coming to church before in my life. But we do, we worry. We worry if people will come to church. We worry what people will say. Right now, there's a worry about presbytery planning. What changes are going to come? And there's times when it feels as though we're surrounded on all sides. But instead of not fearing and trusting God to be God, and not worrying, because what on earth do I add to a situation by doing that? Or to simplify that whole sentence... By doing what God tells me, instead, I'm in a corner, 
just worrying and fretting about what comes next. What David does here is he shows us where our confidence should always lie. It's not in me. It's not in the things of this world. It's in God. Which means that he is always in control and in charge. Because David knows there are times where trouble comes his way. He's experienced it before. He's experiencing it now when he writes this psalm. And he will experience it again in the future. But he's not scared. Instead he writes that God will keep me safe in his dwelling. Hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. David doesn't just trust God to protect him because that's what God does. David trusts that God will protect him because God cares for him. And isn't that what we all want to know? Isn't that something we see as fundamental to life? To be cared for? To be known? To be loved? And David tells us we don't just have to hope for that. Or find that love and care in other people who often let us down. Because they were never made to be our saviour. But rather we can find care and love in the God who made the universe. And even when that day of trouble comes, even when everything feels like it's shifted in a single moment, when nothing feels as it used to, it is God who still cares. He will keep us safe. And when we know our fixed reality in God, when our confidence swells to face another day, will be those who rejoice in worshipping him. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. David anticipates and looks forward to the day that will come when his enemies are no more. And he rejoices in God's presence. And in light of Christ, this matters all the more. Our greatest enemy was sin and death. It lies vanquished, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And so our worship is filled with rejoicing because we are those who know the sacrifice that was offered. But not only do we worship in hope, we pray in response to this hope that is ours. And so verses 4 and verses 7 to 12 teach me to pray. I don't know if you've ever noticed, um, and I don't know if it just happens in the Church of Scotland, and I don't think it does. When it gets to the summer, ministers start to worry about what on earth they're going to preach for the summer, because everyone goes on holiday. And so what you'll often find is that ministers start preaching the Psalms in the summer. I think it's because it kind of rhymes and it sounds nice. We're going to do the summer in the Psalms. And every minister I know does the same thing. We're going to do the Psalms in the summer and the summer in the Psalms. It's going to be lovely. And what I love about the Psalms is that the Psalms teach us how to feel. The Psalms give a wide range of emotion throughout. It doesn't matter where you pick up in the book of the Psalms, you will find a different emotion as you turn through that book. And what we then find is that because the Psalms teach us how to feel, they also teach us how to pray. They give us the words to pray when actually we are so angry that we've got steam coming out of our ears. They teach us the words to pray when we just feel stuck 
in the depths and we're not sure of the way forward. They give us the words to pray when actually we're filled with rejoicing. Because the Psalms don't just teach us how to feel, they teach us how to pray. So David prays a lot in this psalm. He starts off in verse 4, where we find him asking to spend time dwelling in the house of the Lord. Now if you've just spent time reminding us of the enemies that you're faced with, if you've just listed out the things that are hard and sore and difficult, then I reckon that the prayer request would be for God to relieve that, alleviate it, and deliver you from it. David doesn't do that. His confidence lies in God and who he is. Lies in the fact that God will protect him because he cares for him. And so his prayer is very different to what mine would be. He prays to dwell, to gaze, to seek God. It's essentially all the same thing. He wants to be where God is. If we look for it in the world, there's confidence. And know that our confidence is found in God, the creator of heaven and earth. It does two things. It should give us a renewed sense of trust in him and a renewed desire to worship him and be with him. To be with God is now so much easier than it was when David wrote this psalm. For David, to be with God meant being in the temple. For us, it's opening his word. We're those always in the presence of God because of our union with Christ. We dwell in the house of the Lord every time we gather and worship because his presence is with us. But when your confidence begins to wane, is that really our desire? To worship? To turn to God's word? To pray? To seek his face? Because so often it's not mine. I remember reading a wonderful article that talked about actually how do we respond when things go wrong? Uh, when When we've cried, how long, O Lord, over and over and over again. And they spoke about this idea that so many Christians want a vending machine Christianity. Where we can put a little bit in, out comes the cure, and off we go. It doesn't work. It's only as we gaze on him, dwell with him, and seek him that our confidence grows. And when we know God is with us, that he works in and through us, he doesn't simply tolerate us but rather delights in us. And suddenly those games of comparison that we want to play, that constant worrying about how we match up to others, fades. And isn't that something we can hold out to the world and say to them, come and rest in this. Stop the rat race. That constant need to get ahead, to always be pushing forward. Come and rest in a God who can know you and love you and we hear delights in you. If we desire God above everything else and not simply play lip service to these words, there is nothing we need fear in this world. But because the reality we now live in is different, because our confidence is greater than anything this world might offer, it doesn't mean we ignore the situations we find ourselves in. David doesn't think, you know what, I'm going to pray and worship because at least it provides a distraction to what's going on. Rather, he prays and worships because of the one in whom he trusts his everyday situation to. And so in verses 7 to 12, David prays and does so with specifics. 
And he prays with confidence in his approach to God because of God and not himself. Do not hide your face from me. Don't reject me or forsake me. Teach me your way. Lead me in your straight path. Don't hand me over to the desire of my foes. Read those six verses because I guarantee there are things in there that David prays about with a raw honesty that we would never think to pray for ourselves. He talks about the rejection of others and many of us know the sting of that. He talks about false witnesses, malicious accusations. I'm sure there's many of us who have been on the receiving end of conversations like that. And yet this isn't a psalm where he tells us he delivered from it all. But actually it's a psalm of trust. David remains confident not because all of his prayers were answered. But because he trusts in a God who is unchanging. And has already proven himself trustworthy with the outcome. Could you say that you've received answers to every single one of your prayers? Because I haven't. Does it feel as though there is one seemingly insurmountable challenge in life at this moment? You're not alone. And yet David tells us here to pray and do so with confidence and therefore we can be specific. Which leads me to our final heading for this morning, verses 13 and 14. Confidence in the waiting room. Before I became a minister, I spent 10 years working for um, the NHS in Glasgow. And I had the wonderful job of being an auxiliary nurse. I think they're called healthcare support workers now. They change the title just about every two years. But when I was doing it, I was an auxiliary nurse and no one can tell me otherwise. And I used to work in just about every hospital in Glasgow, which means that if you ever get lost in the Southern General or the Queen Elizabeth as it now is, I can probably just about direct you to where you need to get to. Which is fine, because you'll all just go to hear Myers anyway, so it's all good. But for my last year working in the NHS, I was an auxiliary nurse in the outpatients department at Glasgow Royal. And what happens in a waiting room at the hospital is you see every kind of reaction and every single emotion played out in the course of a day. But what you find in outpatients is that you have to wait. And I got the wonderful job of being the person who had to announce if a clinic was delayed. I would often get a phone call, even to a clinic I wasn't working in, and say, Andrew, can you come and tell them the clinic's running 40 minutes late because we don't want to make the announcement. <laughs> and I remember one day, in specific, particularly clearly, I was coming back from a tea break, and Christine, who I'd been working with, who I knew had been there for a year, she said, Andrew, we're running so late, can you announce it? I was like, why? She's like, because that, that, that room looks really scary. <laughs> I said, I'll do my best. And I stood up and said to this waiting room, uh, folks, just to make you aware, uh, the clinic's currently running um, 45 minutes late. Uh, we do appreciate your patience in waiting. And if there is any more updates we can give you, we will do so uh, when we can. And I watched as a whole waiting room bristled. I was expecting someone to come and ask me for a fight outside. <laughs> they were bald. And I'm looking at this waiting room thinking this could go either way and I'm so glad I don't need to run this clinic now for the rest of the day. Until one lady sitting over in the corner, an older lady. Thanks very much, son. We love the fact you've just let us know. That's great. Thanks very much. We're happy to wait. 
I think she was from Easter House. <laughs> and you watched as the rest, the rest of this waiting room just deflated like a balloon. Because if the 80-year-old was willing to wait, then you better believe that 60-year-old better be willing to wait as well. I reckon there are some things we've prayed for and actually you still feel as if you're in that waiting room. Just waiting for some kind of answer. And yet what David tells us in this part of the passage is that we wait confidently because of God. David is confident that this will not be his end. That he will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Even though it's uncertain. Even though he's surrounded on all sides. Even though it looks impossible. David still says, my confidence isn't in this situation. It's not even in me. It's in you, God. But he also knows what our hearts can be like because we want everything now. We don't want stuck in a waiting room. We want God to answer us there and then, not wait, not pause, but see him act right away. And David speaks to his heart. He preaches to himself, which is something we can learn from. In the last verse of this psalm, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. And wait. Now we don't want to hear that. We want everything now. We'd rather take from someone else, compare ourselves in the hope that our confidence might be found in something other than God Almighty. Because when the world around us wants to focus on a different reality, so often we do likewise. And yet there's a moment for every one of us when we lose confidence. And sometimes that will happen more often than we'd like. But friends, that's not a bad thing. When we stop looking to ourselves or other people or other things, we're ready. Because now we can look to God and find a fixed reality in which our confidence is grounded, anchored, immovable, unshakable. Don't you want that kind of confidence? Because I absolutely do. When we don't feel any sort of confidence, we run to Psalm 27, remind ourselves that our confidence is found in Him. So what can we take away from our passage for this morning? Well, I don't know if you noticed, but this isn't a psalm that ends in a resolution. It doesn't end with us thinking, well, you know, that was a nice closing to that, that was beautiful. Instead, David takes us to a waiting room and leaves us there. But could we honestly say that everything in our lives was resolved? That everything in life was going perfectly? And if you've answered yes to that, can I come and have a chat with you over coffee? Because I want to know how you've done it. Does life sometimes feel like you're surrounded on all sides? Does it feel as if you're stuck in that waiting room? Well, the joy that comes from Psalm 27 is that we do not need to fret or get impatient, but rather we can be calm and confident because of God. Confident that he hears us when we cry out to him. Confident that when we seek him, we find him, and he's not like some bad version of where's Wally, where we're constantly trying to see if we can spot him in a picture. 
We're confident that he is our stronghold and our shelter when everything rages around us. If our confidence lies in our abilities, we might as well just give up now because they're not going to get us anywhere. But for the Christian, our confidence lies in God. And so there is no reason to fear. I know that the world looks quite frightening at the moment. Um, I don't call the news the news anymore. I call it the six o'clock bad news. Because that's seemingly all we ever get is bad news after bad news after bad news. The world can be quite a terrifying place at times, can't it? Um, I remember a few weeks ago, um, we we had three power cuts one after the other. Uh, the first one happened, everything switched off, and it came back on five minutes later. The second one happened, by the time the second one happened, I was like, right, it's the end of the world, aliens have landed, it's all, go- it's all gone, just give up. By the time the third one came, I was looking for a shelter online, I was trying to see if there was a bunker somewhere. My confidence went out the window. And what I love about this psalm is that it teaches me where my confidence should always lie. It's never in me. It's never in my circumstance. It is always in God. There is no reason to fear because God is our light, our salvation, the one who gives us life. He is our stronghold, our protector, and the one who cares. We have every reason for confidence in this world. No matter what the world might tell Christians, It might tell us that we're all decreasing in number, never to be seen again. That religion will die out in ten years' time. Our confidence is in God. The one who turns graves into gardens. The one who promises life and life in all its fullness. And the one that we follow, knowing that he will lead us, guide us, and one day take us home. Our confidence never lies in ourselves. It lies in Him because He is our stronghold, our protector, and the one who cares and knows and delights in us. Let's pray together.